Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. Although American film comedy continues to be somewhat lackluster, Armando Iannucci's latest film, The Death of Stalin, offers a bit of hope for us so desperately in need of 90 minutes of laughter. A satire that lampoons the struggle of succession that occurred after the Soviet leader's passing, Iannucci manages to make a film that is in the spirit of now, but also honors the time in which it is set. To get a better sense of the film and the new direction satire is taking, I was joined by Lauren Kaminsky. I am the director of studies at a program called History and Literature at Harvard University. Who also wrote a feature about the death of Stalin in the March-April issue. Here's our conversation. Obviously, humor is very culturally specific. How does Anglo-American understandings of irony and satire sort of interface with Russian humor? Because there is this interplay between the overall Russian aesthetic versus what Armando Iannucci is bringing to it, etc. Well, so there are differences, but there are, in some ways, I think actually what's more interesting is what what sort of the Anglo-American world and modes of satirizing Anglo-American power might have in common with Russian humor and Russian modes of satirizing mm-hmm. uh, authority, sure. uh, especially authoritarian power. But I will say the one moment, the only moment maybe that actually like rang a little bit false for me in the film was in the opening scene in the um, concert mm. because the audience members are smiling. <laughs> and that is actually the only thing that just seemed like, oh, a little off. Like, yeah. actually, resting faces would not be smiles. Yeah. But really, but beyond that, you know, and, and the last thing I want to do is show up and be like a human embodiment of the goofs section on IMDb. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, but there are cultural differences like that that just, you know, one must attend to. Right. On the other hand, I do think that there's something about maybe especially authoritarian power that kind of demands satire. Mm-hmm. There's something about the self-seriousness of it um, that is uh, so easy uh, to mock but through uh, hyperbole and whatnot, but also that is it really gets the goat of the powerful in a way that I think is especially pleasurable. So, so I guess I would say maybe it is less different than maybe the more casual forms of humor. This movie is sort of coming out at an auspicious time, let's say. So how do you feel it's like the the film itself, what do you feel like it's doing differently with regards to other forms of satire? One thing that I love most about the film is the um, Jeffrey Tambor performance as Malenkov Mm -hmm. because it's such a send up of vanity. Right. Uh, and of celebrity, which I cannot help but, um, I don't know, have at the front of my mind in a Trump America. Mm-hmm. So there is something especially pleasurable and and totally uh, historically specific about, um, you know, all of the horrible socialist realist portraits mm-hmm. and the kind of vanity of self-presentation and so on and so on. But also I can't help but think about that one Trump tweet about Alec Baldwin's performance of him, The right? Mm-hmm. Because and so what I what I love most about the Trump tweet is that he the line was something like it was painful for everyone who had to watch the Baldwin performance. But of course, the only performance we all have to watch is Trump. Right. We can't mm-hmm. avoid him like I can watch SNL or not, but I can't avoid Trump. And right. there's something similar about that particular kind of vanity and self-promotion that I think the film just does such a great job of sending up. Yeah. And I mean, in your piece, you talk about specifically the 
interactions between these social realist portraits, uh, paintings, etc., that are just the worst form of art. And then so it's like so refreshing to see because now we're sort of in an age where it's like, oh, all art must have this ideological purity. And if it doesn't sort of express certain things or if it's hostile to uh, certain things, it has to be kind of thrown out. And that was so much of what socialist realism was trying to do. What do you feel like those little historical details, like, do you feel like it could have gone further in some respects? I love that the film, at least for me and the way that I watch it, feels totally against purity. Like it mm. doesn't allow us any form of purity. And uh, and I guess the um, the most extreme uh, example of that is the way that actually the film The Death of Stalin, I think I'm not giving anything away to say that it in fact is really about the death of Beria, mm. who like as portrayed by Simon Russell Beale mm. is like a perfect villain, a totally just a glorious villain. But then by the time we finally do get to his death that feels like a murder that mm. we the viewers feel implicated because we've spent the whole film loathing him mm -hmm. and all the things that he has been made to produce so in that way it feels actually I don't know I noticed that I want to have a kind of like ethical defense of the film actually I think it makes a really interesting argument against violence mm -hmm. um, in the way that it sort of recruits the viewer into that particular position as being one of the gang participating in the death of Beria there at the end. But anyway, so this is all to say, I think the film is totally against purity. And, and I love that about it because it in some ways refuses the kind of um, like pure message of art that I think is like best exemplified by the horrible socialist realist paintings. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you're right. It is also in our contemporary moment where I think we do have an impulse to throw out the things that are tainted by bad actions of many different kinds. Mm -hmm. And I want to go back to what you just said about violence, because I think part of what interests me about the film is that so much of irony, which, you know, satire is sort of inextricably linked, so much of irony is, or American irony, is connected to violence. And, you know, that disjunct between, oh, I shouldn't really be watching this, or I shouldn't be laughing at this, or isn't it funny, this suffering that's happening while well, something totally discordant you know, like the obviously the, the perfect example of this would be Reservoir Dogs, where the cop is getting tortured, yet gets his ear cut off. I guess, you know, there it, it, it's it's such a unique approach to violence. So could you talk about the other sort of manifestations of violence in the film? And again, sort of how does that relate to what people actually experienced at that time? Well, there's so much violence in the film. Like there's so many gunshots. There are so, and many mm -hmm. of them happen off screen. In fact, we very rarely are encountered. Um, the, the barrier scene at the very end is I think um, one of the few where we're encountered with the, uh, we have a sort of extended encounter with the body. Um, so very often there, you know, people are just sort of popped off uh, right. left and right. And there's something very casual about it. Mm -hmm. And I noticed um, in the screenings I've been in, a lot of nervous laughter around mm -hmm. the sort of like dispensing of various people via gunshots right and left. And it made me, I don't know, it made me think about the ways that actually nervous laughter is not so different from the kind of nervous applause that we get in the concert scene at the very beginning of the film. That mm -hmm. is to say, um, when we're not sure how to respond sometimes, it can be very appealing or, or even just uh, kind of instinctive to fall into the sort of like affirming modes of response that we know and then can participate in as a group collectively. So in my screenings, we weren't standing up into spontaneous and ecstatic uh, ovations, but we were nervously laughing together a lot. Yeah, definitely. 
you know, obviously we have sort of this romantic ideal of people or, you know, maybe people on the right do this romantic ideal of people who artists and other everyday people who are sort of standing up and sort of trying to resist, uh, you know, someone like Stalin in their own ways. And could you speak to sort of like the, the satire that was sort of socially acceptable at that time? Or was it just sort of non-existent? There's a... Um a rich cultural history of Soviet humor mm-hmm. that was mainly underground. That is to say something that you could not um, say in public among people you didn't necessarily trust, or you certainly couldn't perform in a concert hall, but, but something, um, you know, the sort of uh, paradigmatic thing is something that you would share with um, your sort of most intimate friends and family around something like a kitchen table. So in the sort of private sphere. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a lot of it. A lot of those jokes are political and a lot of them are sort of funny, not funny. And a lot of them don't really translate well. Uh, But the thing that I think the film gets right about that sort of gallows humor, that sort of very deadpan, very wry kind of humor is that the joke always comes at the expense of the powerful. That is to say, you know, and here actually the um, the many uh, rape victims in the film actually come to mind that there's we it almost becomes a joke because there are so many girls who are sort of consumed by Beria who mm-hmm. then um, becomes a, a perfect villain for our moment um, because it it is another yeah as if as if the the millions of deaths are not enough to hate him for the rape victims because they're these beautiful young girls who are sort of uh, littered throughout the film become more visceral it gives us a more visceral attachment and a more visceral loathing of his body. Mm -hmm. In the way that I think the film sort of litters those girls throughout um, the narrative, but the joke is always on Beria. Wasn't it Comrade Stalin who said one death is a tragedy? (laughs) Isn't that that his his bit? Um, But I guess, you know, we're sort of in this dangerous moment where, you know, it's sort of hard to discern what is real. What is a meme that's making fun of someone who is from, you know, the opposing side? Irony has just, you know, and it's funny to see everyone proclaim the death of irony at various points in history. And now it's just like it's exploded and there are like a million different types of irony or satire out there. Could you speak to what the film is doing? You know, it's not like you get like a sense that this is historically accurate, but it also doesn't say like none of this actually happened or this is a a pastiche of what happened. Yeah, on the contrary, the film has that that line, like based on true events, you know. Right. Um, so there's this real claim to truthiness that's happening. <laughs> yes. At the same time that, you know, it's not a period piece. It's not a costume trauma. Like they're not, they're not even, um, there's, there's no attempt to even synchronize the accent uh, region. Right, you know, right, right. it's like this total, I mean, talk about pastiche. Like it's, there's something sort of uh, almost chaotic about all the different accents, uh, you know, versions of English that you hear in the film. And in some ways, I actually think that that allows the film to inhabit different kinds of humor, certainly, but maybe even different kinds of irony simultaneously. So there's something really British about the humor, I think. Um, At the same time that for me, at least, it chimes with a kind of, you know, uh, tradition of Soviet humor that's about making fun of those in power. But it gets to have it both ways. And I think the film has it both ways in a lot of different registers. Uh, Comedy is one of them. I think actually the, the terror is another place where I think the film gets to have it both ways. That is Mm -hmm. to say, in here, you know, the last thing I want to do is be a kind of, well, a scold uh, of a historian. But but there is this way, you know, one of the things that historians get, I don't know, most agitated about is when Stalin 
uh, is sort of demonized as though he is solely responsible for all of the deaths um, right. that happened uh, during his time as the leader of the Soviet Union. Because, of course, you know, we now know that uh, it took a lot of different people to pull the trigger on all those different guns. And mm -hmm. it took a lot of different courts um, and uh, train operators and whatever else to send all those people to Gulag. So there's this way that the film has it both ways, right? Because it really wants to emphasize whose signatures were on all those pieces of paper. And it really wants to sort of make these uh, Stalin's lists or Beria's lists in a way that really personalize and therefore demonize uh, um, these figures who are doubtless guilty of all kinds of different crimes. However, I think it also does a really great job, uh, the film that is, of um, showing that actually the violence is perpetrated by a whole system of power and people are operating at many different levels. From the officers who are sent out with the lists in the black cars to go take people from their bedrooms in the middle of the night all the way up to Stalin, of course. But that the film gets to kind of have it both ways. It gets to personalize and demonize, especially Beria, for the violence um, at the same time that it shows him just to be a kind of puppeteer of this much larger system. And in that way, I guess, as I as I say this, I realize so in having it both ways with the style of comedy, but also with the way that we understand terror. Mm -hmm. I realized, too, there's something similar about the timing of comedy and terror. That is to say, there's something sort of spectacular about it in the film. And a minor variation in the in the tempo actually switches the tone of the film dramatically at the end mm -hmm. from one of almost farce. It's so sort of jubilant to something else entirely. And I think here about that last line, I think about it as the last punchline in the film. It's that great line that Michael Palin delivers as Molotov. It's in the middle of the coup. They're walking in the hallway and he turns and says, Stalin would be loving this. Right. <laughs> and then nothing else is funny. Mm -hmm. Essentially, at least for me, nothing else in the film is funny after that line. And it takes a very different and much darker turn. Yeah, absolutely. And I think how you describe it, how they, you know, she said, you know, we're not rehearsing this. Do you know where you need to be? Let's just do it. And it's like you it is a palpable shift and the chaos of that. And again, the sense that there are many different actors. A lot of them are talking over each other. Going back to memes, a lot of right wing memes are based on this idea. Well, Stalin killed X many people. Mao Zedong killed this many people. And it's like, well, we don't keep lists of the many people who have died because they couldn't afford this. They couldn't afford that. They felt this sort of pressure. They felt that sort of pressure. They starved to death. There, there aren't lists of those things. And it's interesting that this film really encourages you to, to see the holistic, the systematic. And again, that's something that we as a culture are sort of trying to push forward. And there is always this pushing back of the individual. It's frustrating because it's like, that's, that's not how history is not written by individuals. And on the note of history as a historian, do you feel like the disjuncts of how people are talking, it's part of the humor and it's part of like Iannucci's whole aesthetic, right? Where people are like harpy, insulting, just screaming at each other, just saying the absurd swear words at each other. It's always been his political aesthetic, let's say. But do you feel like this is sort of connected to other, you know, forms of popular satire now? Like, I can't help but think of drunk history and the, and the relationship to this film, for, for instance. I mean, do you feel that sort of connection or that we're in a moment where we can sort of uh, complicating it through humor? 
That's so great. I haven't thought about that, but I, I now I'm thinking about what you said earlier about the sort of instability of facts right now and the way that people like me are mm -hmm. often totally freaked out about alternative facts or however you want to call things that are just blatantly not true. Um, so on the one hand, it would seem like we would be most self-serious right now about maintaining the boundary between the factual and the counterfactual. But on the other hand, I mean, it's true. A lot of what historians do is messy and, you know, hard. of the moment. Yeah, yeah. And hard to sort of summarize. And it has a lot of caveats and a lot of ambiguity. And there is something there just something is true about the the messiness of history. Like that may be the sort of truest thing I could say here as a historian. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that may be one um, part of it. On the other hand, I also think like the film is so filthy. It's just <laughs> totally filthy. It is totally yeah. obscene in every way. Mm -hmm. And there's a way that that actually feels kind of accurate. Like I have no doubt that those dudes were making like body jokes like that. I have no doubt. Of course. And I mean, we see that now with the ghouls that are in power here, uh, that they are just, that they are all very much flesh and blood. And this is, I think, a, a related to the kind of satire um, that is, that seems to me both a kind of like historically accurate um, Soviet sense of humor, but also so Inuchi, which is to mm -hmm. say that it's, um, it's body and sort of corporeal. Like it's about restoring um, kind of gross bodies to people like uh, Khrushchev and Beria. Like, mm -hmm. and part of this is, I mean, the way that they're made up is just glorious. It's so yes. fantastic. Yes. Like, you know, Jeffrey Tambor's uh, Malenkov with that cold sore the whole movie is <laughs> unbelievable. It's so good. Yes. They're revolting. Yeah. Um, and and of course they're morally revolting too and blah, blah, blah. But they also, it is, it is kind of a relief to be revolted by their bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and it's helpful, I think, to remember that these are just people with bodies. Right. It gets away from this idea of this metaphysical evil or this individual that was perverted and is so terrible. And it's like, no, these are ultimately, you know, pasty white guys that you could see anywhere, <laughs> you know, that they are, they're flesh and blood and they're not these, um, you know, they're not etched into stone as even though that's sort of what they're all that they all want. Exactly. Exactly. And there's something about it. And here again, I'm thinking about the Baldwin impersonation of Trump, that actually what the um, leader with authoritarian tendencies, what he wants is to be more than his body. What he wants is to be sort of bigger than that form. And so, in fact, one of the I think the most subversive things we can do is actually just to restore him to the body. Yeah, because it's grody. Yeah, I mean, but but also it comes back to this question of like, how can we have satire at this moment? Because I think of things like The Daily Show, Samantha Bee Show, um, Last Week Tonight. Those are all I have a real problem with those because I feel like they are really just reading us the news and then sort of like making a face or like reading it in a silly voice. And that there's, you know, Trevor Noah gives sort of here's a black guy doing it. And then Samantha B, here's a white feminist doing it. And then John Oliver, here's, you know, it's like you're going to the store and you're just like, okay, I'm getting my satire from this candy machine. Like you're, you're turning a knob and your satire comes out and it's like, oh, this is the flavor of satire I want. But it's not really satire at all. It's just very much like this, it doesn't go far enough. And it's like, it, you can tell 
from the way that the writers on these shows work and what they're sort of trying to do, that they're not really getting at the problems. Because you, you can get people's heads nodding very easily. But you to really just get beyond that and push beyond that, there's not that work isn't being done as much, I feel. That's interesting. I, I spend a lot of my time with like 18 to 22 year olds. Oh, yeah. Because uh, <laughs> I teach at a university. Sure. Um, and I actually have come to think of those shows not as satire, but as the news. Yeah, they have for that group. I mean, that's what I, I remember very vividly when I was in college getting most of my news from there. And I even remember like a friend of mine being like, don't you think it's bullshit that they're just taking this 20 second clip from C-SPAN and recontextualizing it. And you don't actually know what they actually said. They just took the moment where this guy looks stupid. And of course, you know, like I'm 18 and I was like, oh, no, 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 that's, that's, I'm sure that's really happened. And they're not misrepresenting anything at all. And it's like, this is absolutely part of the reason why we're in this completely messed up, I don't know what's real anymore moment because you can decontextualize things so easily. And we're so used to that. It's true, but I, there's a part of me that's just kind of glad for the C-SPAN clip being on like primetime, you know? Yeah, exactly. There's a part exactly. of me and maybe the bar is just way too low right now. But in fact, it and and this is how I feel a little bit about the relationship that the film has, which is fast and loose to the to facts and history and whatever. That is to say, you know, and, you know, again, sorry to be a little teacherly, but this is what I say to my students, which is just track on the sources. So so if you if you know that it is on C-SPAN, then just like notice what is notice what is cited and maybe follow the source if, in fact, you want more. But but then notice when there is no source or notice when the source is dubious or whatever else. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel sort of similarly about the film. That is to say, you know, uh, it's a kind of like historical medley. Like all of these things didn't happen in the time frame that the film says. Mm -hmm. Who cares? It's <laughs> not. It, it is actually evoking something about the sort of crisis of secession that happens after Stalin's death. And it is capturing something about that very fine line between terror and uh, satire. And it's also, sorry, it's clear to me, but I recognize I'm a little bit of a specialized audience in this mm -hmm. way, that the filmmakers are getting, are using as their source material things like Svetlana's uh, memoir, um, as well as uh, other memoirs and other sources that were published around the time. Um, so it's easy, actually, to, to understand once you can sort of um, listen for those cues about what the source material must have been, how it is that they're representing some things, um, and within what they're just sort of making up as they go along. Um, so what I would say is, I don't know, I don't get as freaked out about the John Olivers and the Samantha Bees and the Trevor Noahs as maybe I should, in part because I'm just relieved that some of that footage, that some of the um, news stories are actually getting to my students. Sure. For me, the danger is that it just stops there. Because what you're advocating is a very sensible way and a responsible way to ingest that material. But I think for too many it just stops at, oh, this is what happened. And this guy told me, and I like this guy. And I'm always, and I'm going to trust that he, you know, he's very smart and he's very funny. I'm going to trust him. And that's, I don't want to say demagoguery, but it is like a dangerous, it's a, it's a dicey area, right? It is. And I wonder, in some ways, I think it's a matter of format. I actually am interested in the news that's delivered in the form of a comedy show because it doesn't purport to be the truth. And yeah, like we have a huge problem when, in fact, there's not the sort of second step of wondering, like, is that real that right. happens? And I, I'm with you on that. But but there's a way that um, the facts that are delivered as gospel in something like a textbook or even in something like the New York Times.
Times, Mm -hmm. which of course is slanted and of course is reporting things from a certain angle that I think doesn't invite criticism in quite the same way that a comedy show does. And I'm so I'm interested. And and here I'm not saying like kids don't stop reading the New York Times and just watch (laughs) Trevor Noah. Um, (laughs) Students, if you're listening, uh, please keep reading the newspaper. But but I do think it's interesting actually to invite people whose relationship to news stories or history for that matter is sort of passive, um, who are not people who by profession are actively engaged in this stuff. I actually think it's kind of interesting to invite them to laugh along with the material um, as a way of, of hopefully begging a question about, okay, so how much of this is real and how much of this is a punchline? Because it, to me, encourages a healthier relationship to facts. Because you're right, it's so easy for one or the other, um, for uh, either a sort of extreme rejection of the so-called fact or a kind of religious attachment to the so-called fact, either can contribute to demagoguery. And it can be really hard, I think, to do anything other than have a kind of skeptical and interested relationship to it. I think you're very right to say that there is this lack of skepticism of sources at present. And it's something that, you know, when we talk about factionalism or tribalism, political tribalism in America, you know, that it's, it doesn't, that doesn't really get brought up as much. And there seems to be a lack of introspection on the right and the left in that regard. I guess this film is, you know, doing a pastiche, sort of using certain facts disparately connected, you know, even like the death of the ice skating team. That really happened, and that was very funny, uh, but did not necessarily happen like in this immediate time period. Um, It's sort of, you you know, creating this general sense to create, you know, sort of comment upon this this agony over the secession of power and the scrambling and who's going to come out ahead. How do you feel like there's a, do you feel like there's a responsible way to do that and sort of like an irresponsible way? Because I can't help but think of somebody like Michael Moore, who defends his documentaries, he calls them documentaries, and says, you know, oh, I just want to create a general sense of this thing, but then has no real answers about a lot of things. And like, I was just talking with someone the other day about like Bowling for Columbine, where he does an interview with Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson says, well, you know, they never talk to the survivors. And then Michael Moore talks to survivors and he asks them these completely insulting questions. And it's like, you you are not making anything better. You're part of the problem, dude. But, you know, out on Criterion very soon. <laughs> well, I... On that note, I think it's actually interesting to to think about the labels of these things. It may sure. very well be that I am more comfortable with um, a news show that calls itself satire than I am with something that calls itself the news. Uh, that is to say, I think the bar is higher when you are um, announcing your c- cultural product as non-fictional. And mm-hmm. here, like, I think documentary is actually a really interesting case study. I think the sort of, like, Errol Morris Wormwood thing is a really interesting example. So what happens, like, how much can be fictionalized, how much can right. be sort of reenacted, although I don't even know what that word means anymore. Anyway, all of these things are super interesting questions, but... Um, But in a way, actually, the generic conventions of fiction Mm -hmm. are almost like a get out of jail free card, right? So as soon as, as soon as the death of Stalin says, yeah, okay, based on true events, but like, you know, what isn't, um, (laughs) 
Um, but as soon as it sort of announces itself as, uh, you know, a fiction film, then we're in a different territory than if it was announcing itself as a documentary. And I feel similarly, like I, I try to imagine, okay, so what if Michael Moore or someone who makes documentaries that I find sort of dissatisfying as documentaries, what if in fact he was making them under a different category? What if we had a sort of third way that allowed him to take liberties and play fast and loose with certain things, but would make me less anxious because it was not purporting to be the truth quite the same way. Like I want him to have his sort of Trevor Noah third way. I wanted to get back to this because obviously satire, you know, changes over time. I guess, do you feel like there is a disjunct between sort of like the rich political Soviet satire tradition and contemporary Russian satire happening now? Because there is such a it's very frustrating, but so many people are sort of like, see Russia as this monolithic evil, and they sort of like, oh, it's still Soviet. And it's like, and you see, you know, like in protest signs, and even on the cover of like Time magazine, and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. no, no, you can't do that. That's a really interesting question. I mean, here, I think um, this, uh, the death of Stalin is just so obviously a sort of Anglo-American enterprise, even as, you know, I understand it's produced by a whole group of countries that are not the U.S. And nevertheless, it actually sort of plays to English language sensibilities, and I think in a yeah. really distinct way. So it doesn't it doesn't feel like a Russian movie to me. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't it, it's it's true, although I'm I'm hard pressed to put my finger on it exactly. Um, there's something broader about the comedy um, mm. that I think is not actually in keeping with the the sort of contemporary Russian satire, at least that I'm aware of, um, which is to say that that I can get on the internet because um, I'm living here now. But I, I think it's also interesting to note, so the um, there had been um, a sort of culture of satire before Putin and that ch- and that was on um, like network television uh, and that changed decisively when Putin came to power. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, I guess it's interesting to notice this because, you know, the forms that these things take just are dependent on the um, historical situations in which they were produced. So, you know, I, for one, wouldn't go to a feature film or a television show in Russia looking for satire right now. That's just not where it's going to be, at least right. to my knowledge. Um, whereas the, it those are the forms that it's going to take here in the U.S. or in the U.K. or someplace else. And the form actually does, I think, shape the content. Um, Absolutely. So it, it yes, this feels really different to me, but I think part of it is a question of form. And I guess the forms that you do see, I guess, what is that interaction that you're, you're getting at? Because uh, I just want to let people know that, like, the Russian people have stuff to laugh at, and it's not just, like our new president. It's not just like, no, have you although, seen that documentary? <laughs> although that is, inter- that is internationally fair game. <laughs> yes, it is. These people aren't free. It's like, oh, they still, they still got, they still got memes. It's fine. Exactly. It's not just dash cam footage of like horrible shit happening all the time. Yeah. They yeah. have memes. They'll be fine. Yeah. I like that very much. <laughs> well, before we close, we're going to talk about a film that we've seen recently that we liked. I saw, I was at South by Southwest this past week, and I saw Wobble Palace, which is a new film by Eugene Kotlarenko, Russian-American filmmaker. It's about this long-term couple cohabitating in L.A., and they break up on the eve of the 2016 presidential election, and the film is sort of like, you know, the weekend before sort of leading up and like, it's very honest and it does a great job of representing contemporary anxieties about technology, about dating, about lust, and just like how this technology can really tap into something 
horrible. It just facilitates horrible, you know, um, stuff in us, you know, because that's part of what it's designed to do. And it's very funny. So uh, I actually did an interview with the filmmaker. You could check that out on filmcomment.com. Well, maybe it's because I have fact and fiction on the brain. I want to mention the young Karl Marx. Oh, my God. I love that. Which I loved. Um, and I also think, you know, I mean, it's not it's it's funny, um, but it's a totally different kind of comedy. There are certainly moments of humor. But um, but does, oh, my God, like when they meet. But oh and God. it's it really is to the credit of Raul Peck, the filmmaker, yes. that he allows the camera to linger just a little bit too long. Yes. So we feel we can really like luxuriate in that love connection. Or just like Mark's barfing in an alley. It's really it's good. so good. It I made me it. really happy. And yes. I also, it was a total pleasure to watch here in New York City because, um, you know, there are a lot of little inside jokes for anybody who's who's read a little bit of Marks and Engels. Yeah. Yeah. And the audience that I was in was like knee slapping, like couldn't keep their shit together laughing. Yeah, no. And it, it is actually interesting to think of that approach to history versus death of Stalin's because it is like... Peck took all of the dialogue from these letters. And that's part of the reason why there are these crazy linguistic shifts where they're talking in German, they're talking in French. But then it's still, it shows the humor that does exist in history and it sort of gives it room to breathe. And I, I love that movie. But thank you very much for Thank coming. you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rippold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app. Available on Android, iOS, and Kindle at filmcomet.com slash app.